30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard If you're listening to this, the magic is working. Welcome, friends, to This Podcast is a Ritual. As always, I'm your wizard, Devin Person. And today we're going to be talking about one of my hobbies, pastimes, and favorite subjects to just chit-chat about. Fermentation. Now, if you've spent any time in the magical world, you've probably come across the phrase, as above, so below. Now, this ubiquitous aphorism is a distillation of the hermetic an alchemical belief that reality reflects itself at its various levels. So macroscopic phenomenon, such as the rotation of the stars and planets in the sky, correspond to human affairs happening at the more mundane level which we live our lives. Which is why in magic people often are concerned about making sure the correct star patterns are corresponding to the magic that they're trying to work in their own life. But I've always wondered, what about the levels below us? How do those reflect and reflect our own planes? In the 19th century, we were finally able to peer through microscopes and see the hitherto invisible world of microbes, fungi, viruses, and the rest of our long-lost prokaryotic cousins. Louis Pasteur set out to understand the fermentation process and witnessed firsthand how the yeast on the skin of grapes bubbled and grew under the microscope as it feasted on sugar and produced the waste product of alcohol, which in turn was eaten by other microbes and eventually yielded vinegar. But until we observed that process through a microscope, the common assumption was these things spontaneously generated. If you left flour and water laying out, it would bubble because that's just what it did. Or perhaps it was being worked on by invisible spirits. So my question is, how does that microscopic world reflect what we can see at our level of human existence. When human beings crowd into a city, suddenly they'll bubble and froth into new art movements and create graffiti or hip-hop or any other form of creative expression. And when that happens, what causes that fermentation? What strange invisible macrobes are operating on us human beings and helping us turn calories into artistic culture? My guest today is Harry Rosenblum, who is the author of The Vinegar Revival and the founder of Brooklyn Kitchen. Harry is passionate about fermentation in general, but vinegar specifically, and I was put in touch with him when I first set out to make my own vinegar and needed a funky mother, the wonderful mesh of microbial material that helps you turn alcohol into vinegar, which Harry and I will get into in just a moment. Harry is a wonderful fellow, so let's chat with Harry and learn more about these unseen processes as we learn how to make vinegar. Hello, Harry. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thanks, Devin. Great to be here. 
so excited. Uh, this is going to be a fun one. What's our magic word for today? What's our magic word? How about micro? Micro. Great. Perfect. So on the count of three, we're all going to say it together with all of the listeners that are ever going to listen to this. One, two, three. Microbe. microbe. So microbe is great because it's... We're about to talk about something where there's been invisible creatures that humanity has worked with for a very long time, and only recently do we understand and take them sort of out of that realm of just tradition and superstition and yeah. into a, a deeper understanding of what's going on. And I would say we've yet only scratched the surface Absolutely. of having any idea of what is going on in the microbiome mm-hmm. and in microorganisms. Um, you know, I... I I'm a vinegar maker. I wrote a book about vinegar um, and have done lots of other kinds of fermentation and microbes are responsible for, you know, a lot of the wonderful things that humans like to enjoy. Yeah. Um, they are responsible for the coffee that I'm drinking right now. They are in part responsible for the tea that you're drinking. They're responsible for beer. They're responsible for alcohol. They're responsible for vinegar. They're responsible for sauerkraut. For our body being <laughs> able to digest any of those things yep, at a very exactly. basic thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we th- I think in the 20th century we moved very quickly into this using this word germ mm-hmm. which has a negative connotation to describe all of these things and in, and an attempt to eradicate them yeah we wanted to have the war against germs and yeah. total suppression was the idea yeah and that only things that were essentially sterile mm-hmm. were safe and i think that idea came from modern medicine uh you know probably starting and I'm sort of, I mean, I'm conjecturing here, but, you know, starting from like battlefields, right? If you were doing surgery on the battlefield, it was dirty mm-hmm. and people got infections more and they died more easily, right? Well, it's the, um, I forget the, the doctor's name, but one of the first people to sort of figure out the germ theory was noticing that there was um, some disease, some, some fever thing that women would catch in childbirth and on his ward, they had it at a much higher rate. And it was a teaching hospital and all of the surgeons were coming in from dissecting cadavers with their aprons covered in gore because that showed that they're real doctors that are getting their hands dirty and doing it. And then they would go deliver a baby. And so there was all of this infection. And when he asked people to clean up before they did that, the rates dropped. And they're like, okay, there's something here. Yeah. And I think we took that to kind of a... uh almost a dangerous conclusion Mm -hmm. um, by bringing that into the home in a way that was in fact, and and now has been shown to be not uh, as good for us and our health, even though, yes, when you are in a hospital, you do want things to be sanitary and sterile, but you do not really necessarily need that in your your everyday life. That there's a complexity that I think we often lose sight of and we're like, right, great, this is bad, let's get rid of it. And then we don't realize all of the complex ways that it was actually vital and necessary and yeah. important. And and I think, you know, we now in our, you know, we have this <coughs> thirst for knowledge. I mean, we are constantly expanding what we know as humans. We are, you know, sent men to the moon uh, or not, depending on which conspiracy <laughs> theories you believe. But we're in a, you know, we're, we're looking for more and more information always and creating more and more information. I mean, we now live in a moment where... The amount of information that is available to us is enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt lucky as a kid, like we had encyclopedias, we had early computers, we had all these things. And now I look at what my children have access to and it's it's so much more and it's impossible to consume all of it. And if you look back, people didn't know, like nobody knew that there were microbes before the microscope was invented. Yeah. Right. So you're looking back 160 years, 170 years ago. At that point, people didn't know. They just knew that if you took grapes 
and you crushed the juice and you left it in a barrel, it turned into alcohol and that it, made you feel it good. got awesome. Yeah, exactly. And that was, and we didn't really need to know much more than that. The process got refined mm-hmm. in terms of not, you know, not doing things like sticking your dirty boots in it and yeah. making sure that you, you know, there were certain aspects of cleanliness or but really it was about selecting for those microbes um and helping them do what they were going to do but we didn't know the microbes were there we just knew that the things you did helped make the alcohol more delicious yeah or make more of it we had a whole structure of tradition and routine that was constantly being tweaked and kind of evolving because the people who came up with weird theories that made their wine crappier abandoned them and then yeah. stuck to the theories that were making better and better wine yeah so with the personal aspect, how did you come to be interested in vinegar? So I came to be interested in vinegar. I I got interested in fermentation um, initially when I was in college. Um, when I went to college, I couldn't buy beer, but I could make beer. Yes, DIY. And the, there was an enterprising, uh, uh, my understanding is it was owned by the same family, but there was a homebrew store next to a liquor store in the town <laughs> where I went to college. And so while my friends who were over 21 were buying us all beer mm-hmm. at the liquor store, I and a few friends went over to the homebrew shop and outfitted ourselves with bottles and a capper and supplies and, and malt extract and yeast and all these things. And we went home and we made beer and it didn't save us any money mm-hmm. and it didn't taste very good, but it was so quasi legal and we were able to make it ourselves and that yeah. felt really great. And we drank lots of it. Yeah. Um, so that was my initial sort of interest in fermentation. When I graduated from college, moved to New York City, there was nowhere in New York City in the late 90s to buy <coughs> supplies and ingredients, except for one store that also sold hydroponic supplies. They were very uh, ahead of their time out in Queens, but you couldn't get there without a car. Yeah. And so I didn't go there. And I wasn't living somewhere that I could get packages delivered. So I couldn't go in the catalogs. Those of you who are old enough to remember, we used to have to shop out of catalogs for things and have stuff shipped. I couldn't shop out of any of the catalogs because I didn't know where to get packages delivered. I was working freelance and my apartment had like a door that opened onto the street. And so I started going to the farmer's market and buying cider because I could get yeast shipped and delivered through the mail slot. Ah. So I would buy five packets of champagne yeast at a time for whatever they were, 20 cents a piece at the time. And the postage, I think, cost more than the yeast. But that would fit through the mail slot. I would go to Union Square I would carry home four gallons, two in each hand of apple cider, and I would make hard cider. So I made hard cider for a while. And then in about 2004, uh, late 2004, maybe early 2005, I had a five-gallon batch of cider that I was bottling late one Sunday night. And I had was I, I was you know saving bottles because I was cheap and I didn't have a lot of money and I didn't want to buy bottles because I could just buy beer. Yeah. And then I saved the bottles. I didn't have enough bottles left and I had about a gallon <coughs> of apple cider left and it was like midnight. And of course, you know, at that time I was much more following the rigors of what I feel like the, the late nineties homebrew world was very much against oxygen touching anything after the fermentation was done because uh. it gave you off flavors. And so I was very much like concerned, right? There was how like the you, clock how, was ticking. How do you keep oxygen out? You just try to bottle you, it you, quickly? Exactly. You just want to minimize that. Yeah. Like you fill the bottoms from bottles from the bottom. Mm. And, you know, some people I remember were at, you know, went so crazy as to like try to flush the bottles with CO2. I mean, all kinds of things wow. people did. And it went like, so of course in my heart, I, you know, I, I, I was, I felt like the clock was ticking, right? And here was this vessel of open, it was open, it was open yeah. to the air. Oh my God, what this is What's going to happen? It's not going to, the cider's not going to be very good. And, 
I remembered that I had a bottle of organic white wine vinegar in my kitchen cabinet that had grown this like floating gelatinous pad on top. And I had a vague sense of how vinegar worked. I knew it was made from wine, alcohol. I knew apple cider vinegar was made from apple cider, obviously. Yeah. And But I didn't really understand the process that well. And I thought, well, all right, I'm going to pour these things together and leave this out and leave it open. And Let that I, oxygen in, that exactly, dirty, that dirty oxygen. oxygen that we all need for life. <laughs> and I left it in the corner of my boiler room and went back to it about two months later and it had delicious. I had like a gallon of delicious apple cider vinegar. And I thought, this is amazing, right? And it had grown this giant thing, floating mother, and we call it mm-hmm. mother on top. And I thought, this is really cool. And I popped a bottle of the cider that I'd made, the hard cider, to taste it next to it. And it was like, meh, it was like mediocre. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is cool. So the cider, which was my product I was going for, was mediocre. The product that I made essentially quasi by accident or because a light bulb went off or based on circumstances that happened using a different microbe turned out delicious. Yeah. So this is really neat. And so I started making lots of different vinegar from other things. What a happy accident. Yeah. And I think that's I mean, such a great was... metaphor of like you, you, you're trying to do the one thing and yep. then the, the real fruit comes yeah. along um, somewhere yeah. else. And so, I, and I got obsessed with vinegar and, and it, it happened at a, you know, it happened at a moment where craft beer had finally gotten to the point that like, I no longer felt like I needed to make my own beer. Yeah. Right. I mean, by the, t- the first few batches in college were horrible, but <coughs> by the time I graduated, we were making some pretty good beers mm-hmm. and the craft beer thing hadn't really fully hit yet. And so, you know, but now like I would almost never consider making beer right now because you can go to any bodega and you can buy really good beer by comparison, right? Yeah. You can't get like the best stuff, but whatever. So I got very interested in making vinegar and I started exploring it. I started reading as much as I could and just trying to find out about it. And I made it for years and years and years. And that led to writing Vinegar Revival. And so what is the history of vinegar? Like when does it come into use and how did it evolve in different cultures? So, I mean, there, there are, there's, you know, vinegar predates uh, written history. Yeah. So, you know, it's somewhat unclear, but cultures where they were making alcohol. So certainly in China, certainly even all the way back to the middle east i mean tigris euphrates like the you know the heart of civilization i mean they were making wine and the way that vinegar works is that you have to have alcohol present and that's made by yeast yeast consumes a sugar um, and produces alcohol and carbon dioxide that those are the byproducts of the yeast consuming the sugar and in the yeast the sugar is its food and then the yeast reproduces and so you get more and more yeast eating more and more sugar and the bacteria that creates vinegar is acetobacter. Acetic acid is vinegar. And the acetobacter consumes the alcohol and converts it into acetic acid. And so that process is natural. I mean, the yeasts, in the same way that yeasts are sort of omnipresent, I mean, if you leave a bowl of flour out on your counter, eventually it will, with water in it, eventually it'll start to bubble because yeasts are going to land there. Yeah. And in some places there are, you know, larger colonies of yeast and in some places there are smaller Certainly where a thing, there are things like flowers and there are nectar. There's a lot more. Um, and acetobacter is also sort of omnipresent. So it's the reason why if you leave wine out, that eventually it will turn into vinegar. And so, you know, any of those early alcohol production uh, producing uh, places in the world would have had vinegar. Now, it didn't get really fully commercialized. Um, France is credited in, you know, the 13th, 14th century as kind of commercializing vinegar production from wine. Interesting. 
they already had the wind down and then they're yeah. like, let's just keep going. Let's, yeah. see, let's see what we we're and, going and with it, And it became a very important product. I mean, <clears throat> being able to make, you know, make something acidic um, was very important. As late as the early 20th century, the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture published bulletins for farmers on how to make vinegar on the farm because it was a good way to convert your leftover apples or grapes or other things that you were growing that were sweet into a stable product, but also it was something you could use around the farm. You could use it for cleaning. You could use it for um, sanitizing, um, but it also was just you know super stable. How does vinegar sanitize? So the acidity kills other microbes. Um, you know, microbes exist in a, a vast array. Of... Microbe on microbe violence. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, for, on, on the extremes, I mean, there are microbes that live by the heat vents in the bottom of the ocean, which are like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of degrees. And, oh, know, yeah, those can, ones are gnarly. They can live there all the way to microbes that exist in the cold. Um, there are microbes that, you know, can live in your freezer. Yeah. Um, and then there's a whole spectrum of microbes that either can, can live in very basic or very acidic environments. But a lot of the uh, microbes that are harmful to us are killed by acid. That's why our stomachs are so acidic. Ah, interesting. So we've evolved to have acid in our stomach, not only because it breaks down the food that we eat and helps sort of separate out the, uh, you know, the, the, building blocks of amino acids and fats and proteins and you know all the all those things in there and minerals um but that it also kills a lot of the things that can harm us and that you end up with things like e coli where there are certain strains which are acid resistant so a lot most of them are not yeah. like vinegar uh most vinegar which has a ph below three 3.0 will actually kill most e coli but there are certain strains of e coli and those are the ones that are harmful to us which can withstand that acidity. And the white, uh, the, the classic distilled white vinegar yep. is watered down. They make a really strong vinegar and yep. then they reduce so, it so you don't get acid burns. Right. I mean, and and it is a it is an acid. I mean, you know, and, and it is one that is used uh, also industrially. I mean, I find acetic acid to be very interesting because the same product is used industrially and culinarily and it is used in scientific applications. It has lots of applications, but distilled white vinegar is pure acetic acid and it is usually what you buy in the store is five percent meaning it is five parts acetic acid to 95 parts purified water distilled water and that's all it is and so that has a smell mm -hmm. which is the smell of acetic acid now when you get into making your own vinegar and you're using other things that vinegar you make should smell like whatever it's from so if you are making vinegar from pineapple scraps that vinegar will have will smell like pineapple because you have those volatile compounds uh, that are going to cause it to smell and taste like that, just like apple cider vinegar tastes like apples. Amazing. Now, in your book, there's a couple of vinegars that you suggest people don't make at home. <laughs> yes. And one of those is sherry vinegar, and mm -hmm. one of those is balsamic. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk about those and, sure. and why those aren't worth it for the DIY set. So, you know, you can certainly make vinegar from sherry, and I've made delicious vinegar from sherry, but, but true sherry vinegar, um, much like sherry itself needs to be made uh if you're going to call it that in a solera method and for those unfamiliar a solera is a series of barrels and so the idea is that you are moving the liquid whether that be sherry or whether that be sherry vinegar from one barrel to the next and when it gets to the last barrel you empty it out and you bottle it and then you put new into the first barrel and so there's this kind of continuous 
contact so that if you have a Solera that's 100 years old, when you're bottling sherry from that Solera, there are molecules in today's vintage from 100 years ago. Wow. There's like a little bit left, right? So it's this kind of continuous thing. Um, and it's just not worth it. Like you wouldn't ever like as a home vinegar maker bother to do that. You're not going to get nine or 10 barrels and then move it through. You're just like, you know, that's a... You need a big garage for yeah, that. Yeah, and, it's, and it's, almost, it's almost an industrial process, but it has this very interesting piece of like a historical um, process to it. So I, I encourage you to make vinegar from sherry, but I don't encourage you to try to copy sherry vinegar. Right. And I, and I guess that recommendation sort of comes out of my history as a home brewer, where a lot of the early home brewing was to try to copy other things. Right. It's like, oh, can I make Sierra Nevada at home? Yeah. Right. Um, and so I wouldn't suggest that with sherry vinegar. Balsamic is similar to that. Balsamic is a little bit different as a vinegar. It doesn't start from a straight wine. It is a great must that is actually uh, cooked. And so it is the, the, the sugar is concentrated in it um, and then it oxidizes over time and moves through a battery, a battery of barrels they're called a batteria. And traditionally those were eight to nine barrels of decreasing size. And so you would start with a hundred liters and your final barrel would be 10 liters. So, and that process can take upwards of 20 years to go from one to the next as you are losing uh, liquid to evaporation and yeah. it's becoming more concentrated and in true balsamic then becoming more viscous. So you're talking about a process that takes what in terms, in a lot of terms is considered a generation to complete the product. You go, you lose 90% of what you start with and then to actually be sold as true balsamic, there's two places in Italy, there's Modena and Reggio Emilia. They both have requirements, but the way it works is the Balsamic makers bring their balsamic in front of a consortium of their fellow makers who all taste it and either give it a yay or a nay that it can be sold as balsamic. So you might spend wow. 20 years making three different kind, you know, three different, slightly different versions. You might blend them together and think this product is great. And then you take it to your, to your peers and they might say, nah, it's not good enough. You know, Giuseppe's is better or whatever. And so you've then spent 20 years and lost 90% of your starting volume and had to store it and keep track of it and do all this labor. And it might not be good enough. Now that's not, you know, that's an extreme example. That doesn't happen very often because the people who are bringing their stuff to the consortium know what they're doing. Right. right? And have been doing it for generations. Um, when you see balsamic labeled by year, that is now there, there is a lower grade of balsamic in Italy called condimento. That has to be aged for a minimum of three years. But even making that at home, that often has added sugars or thickeners to give it that viscous texture that we associate with really great balsamic. And it's just not worth it for the home for the homemaker at all. Uh, if I walk down to a grocery store, not a fancy organic yeah. grocery store, just a regular grocery store, and I pick balsamic off the shelf, has that been approved by the consortium? Is that no, no, it has not. Okay. Um, it, it has not. There are there are some like minimum regulations. For what grape it starts from and things like that for something to be called like balsamic of Modena. Mm -hmm. um, but even but even at a regular grocery store, you'd be hard-pressed to find something that says condimento on it, which yeah. is that grape that's aged for three years. Um, saying it's balsamic of Modena doesn't require aging. It can have thickeners and things like that in it. If you're, and you know, when you think about what goes into it and you look at, you know, traditionally balsamic is sold in tiny little bottles, like they're 125 milliliters is the standard size. Wow. And they run, you know, upwards of $100. But when you think about what it has taken to produce that, yeah. 
it actually doesn't seem that expensive. And you're not going to take that and make pickles out yeah. of it, for instance. You're going to take that and you're going to drizzle it on something, and it is going to impart an incredible flavor to what you are what you are eating. I am not the biggest like food person. Like, like I don't you know normally go to insane lengths to try the thing that's really like fancy. But that I am now so curious as to what the the high grade balsamic is all about. I mean it it is it is sweet and rich and complex and viscous um, and you know much like a good wine will have different notes depending on where it's from and how old it is and what the vintage you know yeah. is things like that it can flavors ranging from like peppery to cherry to sweet to uh, you know savory I mean it's it's really it's a fascinating product and and when you look at it you know they they come in different ages right so 12 year would be the youngest there's usually 12 18 and 25 those years are really just estimates mm -hmm. because nobody's actually checking but no maker would bring a balsamic blend to the consortium <laughs> to taste and ask for it to be listed as 18 year that was any younger than that because it just would never pass yeah so like nobody's actually looking at the dates no one's looking this year and being like, oh, you didn't start that in 2001. That can't be 18 year. It's just nobody would do it. Like nobody would ever bring it to the consortium if it was, if it was that young. Well, yeah. I mean, you don't want to upset the consortium. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally like fool, picturing, right? you know, like a tribunal of like people in hooded robes <laughs> and everyone's, everyone's got a little piece of bread that they're dipping into the balsamic. I mean, you know, you could start wizard balsamic. I mean, that would be, you know. It's not a bad idea. There's a wizard hot sauce and it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> that okay I, i'm so blown away by the like the the, the deep rich mysteries of, of balsamic um but that was what i think really appealed to me with your book in the first place where i think just the amazon description was talking about the vinegar that you get at the store is different than the live culture one that you've made at home yeah. and some of these which in fermentation i run into this problem where some things are like you can do this. It will just be ready in four years. And I don't have time for that, especially if it's yeah. my first time doing it. I don't want to wait four years and go, To see oh, if you did it right or that, that's delicious or, yeah. But I actually just bottled the very first vinegar that I made from red wine after I met up with you and got a mother. And it is amazing. It was so cool to watch this over time evolve and transform and... Uh, we were talking about this earlier that the the mother kept growing on the top and then it would sink down and then another one would grow yeah. and so when I finished I had a whole bunch of these gelatinous frisbees which now I've started a new set of magical yeah. vinegars yeah and I mean you know you're essentially a microbe farmer yeah. at that point right I mean you are choosing uh, to make an environment where the acetobacter can thrive based on the fact that there's alcohol in there that there's oxygen available to them that it's in a place that is the right temperature. Um, and, you know, and, and it isn't, it, it takes very little active uh, participation. Mm -hmm. um, really, you're, you're setting it up and you're keeping an eye on them and you're tasting it along the way. And, you know, the, one of the things I love about making vinegar is that it can be from, it, it can be as intense or as not intense as you kind of want it to be. Mm -hmm. You can go out and say, all right, I'm going to make six different varieties of wine vinegar and I want to see how they taste differently. Or you can say, I'm just going to use a, splash of every bottle of wine that i open right because you have the there's the method where you let one thing sit and then that just makes a single batch and then yeah. there's the other one where you are literally filling from the top and yeah. letting and it the, go yeah and, that, and that's an old i mean you know that that's something that people who've spent time or have have family history and 
in you know France and Italy will probably recognize. I mean, there's lots of people there still that keep a vinegar crock, and so you just pour the dregs in of basically everything. You know, every little every you splash a little wine in there every day, and that the microbes are then very happy and healthy. I find with that what I end up doing is I'll add to it, and then I'll wait a week or two, and then I'll decant some off for use. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really matter because at no point does it go through a state change where it can hurt you. Yeah. You know, you can drink it when it's wine and cook with it when it's wine. And it'll just become more acidic once all the alcohol is consumed by the bacteria. And if you draw some off that still has a little alcohol in it and you're making something and you're cooking it, it doesn't really matter. It just cooks out. Yeah. I'm just imagining the worst frat vinegar where, you know, every, every time they have a party, <laughs> they're, they're like, Oh, we've got, we woke up the next day and we have all of these cups of, uh, warm natty ice laying around and we'll just pour that in and make uh i mean i'm sure that you know listen if there's a, <laughs> if there's a frat out there doing it i want to meet them yeah yeah <laughs> so I, I it blew my mind i actually was so shocked that i didn't know this that malt vinegar is from beer and you gave me a delicious one that was made from a stout yeah. from i forget the brewery from fifth hammer brewery. from fifth hammer I mean, and it's yeah. it's fantastic it was really I've always been a fan of malt vinegar. When I get fish and chips, I'm just slathering as much yeah. vinegar as I can on it. And that was amazing. What happens if you try to make vinegar out of a generic beer like Budweiser? I mean, you can do it. I find that, that whatever in those beers, and I don't know what it is that causes them to get that kind of skunky flavor mm -hmm. that people talk about, um, is that that becomes pronounced. Ah. So you're sort of making this like gross. I mean, it, it is like the day after a college party yeah. vinegar kind of uh which is not something that is particularly delicious but you can make delicious vinegar out of pilsners um you know it it uh but you have to also like even pilsners get a little bit of that and i think it has to do with the i think it's diacetyl that's in there that's in pilsner malt mm. which is why pilsner um when you do your boil on a pilsner you have to boil it for 90 minutes instead of 60 because you're trying to boil that or maybe it's not diacetyl; it's something else. I forget. Anyway, I haven't brewed in a while, but there is something in there um, that gives it that kind of flavor. So I think that is sort of, you know, dangerous if you're going to do it. But you could do it. I mean, any kind of alcohol. It doesn't, you know, you do. You can't really do it from like watered down distilled spirits. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen some recipes where people do it, but I have not had luck with it because the bacteria need other nutrients and other things in there. Um, and distilled spirits are essentially mostly alcohol. Right. You know, so I think brown enough. spirits work okay, especially if they're real, because those are clear and then have sort of retaken up mm. things out of the wood that they're yeah. aged in. What are some of the most interesting vinegars that you've discovered in your studies, either from the, the process or just crazy ones from a sure. specific culture? Um, I mean, I, uh, I've had some really, I've had some persimmon vinegar um, from Japan. That is spectacular. Um, you know, persimmons sometimes are very astringent, um, but I just found the, the flavor of it to be incredible. Uh, there's a sweet potato vinegar um, made in Japan, also actually, where they do a lot with sweet potatoes. Shochu is often made from fermented from sweet potatoes. Um, that vinegar is absolutely delicious um, and actually like a bright pink color because they use those purple sweet potatoes. So that one's a really that's a very cool one. I you know have now you know now the the fermentation uh i guess community is well connected through social media and there's a, a chef in maine whose name is sean doherty 
And Sean and I met up over the summer and hung out and talked about vinegar and fermentation. And he gave me some vinegar that he had made from Moxie, the soda. Oh, wow. Where he had taken Moxie and let it go flat and then added some yeast that ate all the sugar and turned that into alcohol. And then he made vinegar from that. Um, and that was that was delicious. I mean, and there are people who are Moxie like, is such an interesting thing. I moved as a kid to Massachusetts and it was the weirdest beverage because the first time I tried it, it was like, this is awful. This is just absolutely gross. (laughs) And then I yet I wanted another sip. And then as I had another sip, I was like, this is still terrible, but I want another sip. And then finally I was like, I think I actually like this. There's something that's really good about it, but it has such a weird flavor. That's I'm so curious about that vinegar now. Yeah. I'll I'll have to bring you some. Oh, please. I have some. Yeah. Uh, That one's really good. I mean, I, you know, the, the world of making things into vinegar is like so endless at this point that I find it, you know, it's, it's fascinating um, and I encourage people to do it at home. I mean, you know, as you pointed out, and then as I say in the book, there you, know, you can buy vinegar in the store, but by and large, what you make at home is still going to be better. And so to me, much like when in my early days of home brewing, that's the real reason to make it at home. Well, on that note, let's get into our spell for the episode, which I think will be very similar. You asked me for a spell at the end of yeah. the podcast we just recorded uh, for your show. And... So I, I would love for you to just tell people the simplest way that they could make vinegar at home. Cool. So the simplest way to make vinegar at home is to, you, you basically need, you need, you need only a few things. You need a vessel, um, preferably, you know, glass or crock, although you can do it in plastic. I don't like to. Um, if you happen to have a small oak barrel, that's great. But in its most simplest, you happen to have a small oak barrel I mean, just laying around. I, oak is oak adds a <clears throat> delicious flavor. But let's just say, super simple. You need a jar, big old glass jar. Yep, big old glass jar, and you need some kind of alcohol that you like to drink. I suggest starting from something you like to drink. So whether that be, not natty light, yeah, not that. Well, I mean, yeah, even if you like to drink natty light, you can use natty light. I'm gonna just say something you like to drink, hmm. um, assuming that it is a self-selecting spell. In that people who like to drink Natty Light probably aren't going to be making vinegar. There we go. Uh, so you need a glass jar, something you like to drink. And and when you say something that you like to drink, again, it, it needs to be beer or wine most, level. At, at, mo- at its most simple, it has to be alcohol. Um, I would say beer, wine, cider, sake, something yeah. like that. You may need water, depending on the alcohol level of what you have chosen. You want your alcohol to be below 9%. So you want to water down wine by about a third uh, most beer will fit right in under nine percent, so you don't have to do anything with it. Um, but if you don't drink beer, then I want, I want to make this spell open to you. Yep. And you need some raw vinegar. Now, whether that's raw vinegar that you get from me, or whether it's raw vinegar you get from someone like Devin, or your neighbor, or something off the shelf, raw, natural, unfiltered, uh, unpasteurized vinegar. And what you want to do is you want to put your alcohol, and if you mix it with water, with water into your jar. Um, you want to leave a little bit of headspace because you do need oxygen in there. And then you want to glug in some of that raw vinegar. And you basically, that's it. You just want how, to let it How sit. much? Um, I would say to a quart, you want to put in two to four ounces or so okay. of raw vinegar. That'll give you a good start. You don't yeah. need that much. So about I mean, a cup. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you don't need that much because the microbes will propagate themselves that's what they do essentially mm-hmm. they reproduce and they do it much faster than we do as they're humans. like bunnies yeah even even faster in fact um but you know so you could start with two or three yeah. but you want to start with a couple hundred thousand if you yeah. uh and so the one that i've seen in the store most comments is like the brags yep 
apple cider vinegar that yep. even says with mother on it. That's yep. that's good to go. Bragg's is good. The the caution that I would give you for something like Bragg's is that I have definitely heard from people that Bragg's doesn't always work. Mm. And I believe the reason for that is that the microbes need oxygen to live just like we do. Glass is impermeable to oxygen. Mm-hmm. So when they package Bragg's to put it on the shelf while the microbes may be alive at that moment, if you leave it in glass long enough, they're going to die. Yeah. And so it you're you are if you look at the date code on there, I believe that Bragg's date codes for five years into the future. Wow. So if you look at it today and your date code is five years out, then that was bottled recently, so it's probably got a lot more <coughs> bacteria in it. If you look at it and the best buy date is like this spring, it's probably been in there for a while and you're less likely to have living as many living bacteria. Gotcha. Are there other brands that you would recommend that people could find? Um, There aren't any other than Bragg's that are like nationally distributed. Um, There are, I mean, there are some, I guess Horizon Organic, I think has one. There's a couple of others, but just look for one that says unpasteurized. And if for some reason it doesn't work, then try a different one. Or head up me and Heron. We'll send you some some vinegar in the Exactly. We'll, 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 we'll hook you up. Um, but it shouldn't be that hard to find uh, at a health food store or even at better grocery stores um, some kind of unpasteurized raw vinegar that you can start from. Great. So they've got that all set up in their yeah. jar and then... And then just put something over the top. Uh, <clears throat> vinegar, you do catch more flies with vinegar. Uh, the old <laughs> adage is true. So you want to put a piece of an old t-shirt or a, or a towel or a napkin or Coffee something. Filter Coffee filter. Coffee filter. Yeah. You can use a um, paper towel. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Over the neck of the jar with a rubber band. And put it in a relatively warm place uh, out of the... You don't want it in direct sunlight, but you can leave it on your counter. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want it to be too cold. The bacteria do like uh, heat all the way up into like the mid-90s. Mm. So in the summer, I find my vinegar converts much faster yeah. than in the winter. Uh, and then leave it alone and taste it, you know, every... I would say every week or two and see how it's tasting. It's never, you know, it's never going to go through a state change where it can hurt you. And it'll just get more acidic, and it will probably grow a big, thick mother on top. Yeah. And when it tastes good, bottle it and use it. Yeah, mine was funny because I it definitely tasted like wine that had set out for quite a while. And I was tasting it, and I was like, I don't know if this is going. This is this, this tastes like gross wine. And then it was cool to see it finally start to yeah. transform yep. and become something else. Yeah, I mean, when you get enough of a tipping point of the alcohol decreasing because the acetobacter is going up, then you can really get you can taste it. And you might get some yeast growing on the top. That's That happened to me, and I freaked out, and I messaged Harry. Yeah. He's like, actually, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but you can just scoop that off. Yeah, you can skim it off. If you get any, uh, like, funky green or black-looking mold, I would say something has infected it, um, and I would toss it out and start over. Um, it is unlikely that it's not, you know, not going to, like, kill you, but it's going to end up tasting kind of gross. I've certainly had that happen. Um, and you know, that is because there are microbes all around us in the air and on everything we do. Good microbes and bad microbes and they're all around us. And I would love to just add to this, the, uh, the little bit of magic that we talked about on your show of, I think this is a great ritual that you can do where you're tying a material process to something immaterial, the same way that we didn't always know that microbes were actual little things that you could see under a microscope. They were just invisible beings that made vinegar or wine. Um, Thinking about what is a transformation that you'd like in your own life? What is an invisible attribute, whether that's kindness or patience or creativity, that you would like to bring into yourself and transform you? And then just write that out and tape that as a symbol, as a word, 
to the bottom of your jar before you begin and think about that as you continue to go through the process side by side of as that wine or beer is becoming a vinegar, what in your life is transforming and bringing in um, that macro phenomenon yeah. of kindness or creativity or whatever it is you'd like to explore. Sounds great. Awesome. And report back. Let us know how it turns out. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Harry. Thanks, Devin. To learn more about making vinegar on your own, you can pick up Harry's book, The Vinegar Revival, wherever books are sold, or learn more about cooking in person through thebrooklynkitchen.com, where you can take a wide array of culinary classes. Harry is also the host of the Feast Your Ears podcast and happened to have me on as a guest. So please go over and check out our much longer chat about fermentation and wizardry and all the wonderful overlap between the two. Now, to get some more magic in your life, you can just keep it locked to this podcast as a ritual, where in the near future, we have some very exciting wizard-centric episodes that I'm just so, so stoked to share with you. But until then, just keep working your own magic and bubbling and frothing your way through the world, creating culture wherever it can grow. Peace and love.